This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, our first during Black History Month. And before this hour is up, we're going to delve a bit into American black history. When we do so, we're going to take a look at some nasty business. But before we get there, we're going to do a detour into some other nations and what they've been up to. Give us some per- this should give us some perspective as to uh, our domestic situation. And I think educate us, at least in the first case, about something that I think most Americans know nothing about. And the first case in this case will be Japanese politics. This is a subject which yours truly is, uh, fair to say, somewhat over his head in, on the one hand. On the other hand, I've been doing some reading and discovered some remarkable things which I think we must talk about. Starting with the fact that a year and a half ago, the former Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, or is it Abe Shinzo? I believe the family name is Abe, and they were having to go back and forth, which is appropriate. From this point forward, we'll refer to him as Shinzo Abe, was startlingly assassinated. Now, there is a history of assassination in Japan, as there is in pretty much every country of the world. But it is a fact that in Japan, there are very few guns, particularly handguns. So it was an added shock when the prime minister was taken out with someone using a homemade handgun. In our examination of this event today, we're going to go back in time to uh, World War II and come forward through Japanese history via the Moonies which I'm sure strikes you as a rather odd route. It certainly strikes me as such. And by the Moonies, I refer to the Unification Church, that of Reverend Sung Mung Moon, a Korea-based religious group, which nevertheless has its fingers in a lot of pies, including the Korean CIA and, and our very own. And it turns out the Liberal Democratic Party of Japan, which has pretty much dominated Japanese politics since World War II. Shinzo Abe was a member of the LDP, which is not exactly surprising since in no small part it was founded by his grandpa. And in fact, to outline this story properly, you probably need to go back to the tale of his grandpa. And to do so, I'm going to refer to the Yamato Dynasty, the secret history of Japan's imperial family by Sterling Seagrave and Peggy Seagrave, authors of the New York Times bestseller, The Sung Dynasty. Now, this story, properly told, is fiendishly complicated. We're going to have to give you the Cliff Notes version of a lot of this, which which is what we do pretty much every week. I guess what we'll do here is start with the founding of the LDP as described by Sterling Seagrave. Let's examine the amazing career of the three LDP kingmakers. The three we have chosen for this purpose are Kishi Nobusuke, Tanaka Kakue, and... Kanamaru Shin. I'm, these names are going to be a little bit tough, but let's stress the fact that Kishi Nobusake is Shinzo Abe's grandpa. Said Seagrave, they're not only mischievous LDB politicians, but their stories form a single thread that is easy to follow. Together with the underworld godfather, Kodama Yushio, and the party founder, Hatayama Ichiro, These were the great political vampires of post-war Japan. 
They, not the emperor, had the last word in picking prime ministers and allocating cabinet posts. No prime minister from 1946 to 1993 held his job without the blessing of one of them. Kishi, that's grandpa, personally bridged the pre-war and post-war epochs, going from dealmaker for the Kwangtung Army in Manchuria to dealmaking for Japan Inc. without breaking stride. His story is an object lesson in the cross-dressing of high finance. Physically, said Seagrave, he remes- physically, said Seagrave, he resembled a salamander. Born Sato Nobusuke in 1896, he was so quick-witted and clever that he was adopted by a paternal uncle bearing the Kishi name. His brothers stayed home and used the Sato name. One brother, Sato Esaku, became a post-war finance minister. After Tokyo University, Kishi Nobusuke got a job in the Ministry of Commerce and Industry filing policy papers and correspondence which gave him insider information. During the Great Depression, his star rose quickly when he showed rich investors how easy it was to gobble up and loot small firms that were going under. He became a wizard in the creation of cartels and trusts. Japan's seizure of Manchuria in 1931 gave him his big chance. He was sent there to investigate industrial possibilities. He made friends with General Tojo, chief of the secret police in Manchuria, and showed Tojo how the army could squeeze private shareholders out of the state-controlled South Manchurian Railroad Company, SMRC. The SMRC had all the rights to exploit Manchu railways, harbors, ports, mines, oil, hotels, transport and communications, and was already one of the largest capital resource units in the world. Fortuitously, the president of the SMRC was Kishi's uncle by marriage. Kishi showed his uncle how the SMRC could greatly increase its profits if the Kwangtung Army and the Japanese underworld used state terror to bring Manchuria into submission. In other words, Kishi promoted the use of terror and extortion to advance the Japanese army's wealth in Manchuria. He was able to arrange for army-controlled Manchuria to enjoy the most modern administrative skills by bringing in one of Japan's most successful new zaibatsu, which is an industrial concern. In this case, it was Nissan, which was headed by another of Kishi's uncles. By putting his two uncles together with General Tojo, Kishi wove together the interests of politics, army, business, and gangsters in a way that would have deeply impressed Hitler and Stalin. Manchuria under Kishi also became the prime source of heroin in Asia. He made the Kwangtung army so rich that it could act independently of Tokyo and could go off and start the China War on its own. Thanks in large measure to Kishi, General Tojo was such a success that he became the Kwangtung army's chief of staff and eventually Japan's wartime dictator. So, said Seagrave, we have Kishi to thank for many things. During the war, Kishi was promoted to Minister of Commerce and Industry in Tokyo and also served Tojo as Vice Minister of Munitions. After Japan's surrender, Kishi was jailed in Sugamo prison on charges of looting Japan and Manchuria, theft of private assets, and enslaving thousands to work in factories and mines. On the eve of his arrest, Kishi received a telegram from a crony. Americans aren't likely to convict and execute you, so advise don't do anything rash. Don't admit to anything. In Sugamo prison, Kishi mingled with a who's who of politicians, businessmen, bureaucrats, and outlaws. Among his cellmates were underworld godfather Kodama and the extremist future founder of the LDP, Hatoyama, who favored beheading all political opponents. 
So Sugamo Prison was a finishing school for scoundrels. During the war, Kodama, the most famous of Japan's tattooed outlaws, the Yakuza, had made billions sidetracking war loot, and in 1945 was the richest man in Japan after the emperor. Kodama had already paid for the founding of the Liberal Party, and now he offered to found another party for Hatoyama if Hatoyama agreed to let Kishi handle all the finances. Hatoyama would be the leader of the new Democratic Party, but Kishi would be the money man and backroom dealmaker. They agreed, and Kodama turned over millions of dollars to set up a slush fund. This was only a drop in the bucket. It's estimated Kodama's worth in 1945 was $13.5 billion, and that's probably only a small portion of the actual toll. Kodama only admitted publicly to having $200 million and generously offered to give all of that to General MacArthur's occupying forces to split between America's friends, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, and the Counterintelligence Corps, a forerunner of our CIA. When Washington secretly accepted Kodama's offer, Kodama and Kishi were quietly released from prison and were never prosecuted for their leading roles in the dark side of the war. The American CIC was so appreciative of his $200 million bribe that Kodama was later hired as an expert on red bashing during the Korean War. He remained on the CIA payroll until the Lockheed scandals in the 1970s. Anyway, this is the milieu from which Shinzo Abe came and I think explains a lot about why it was he spent a lot of time as prime minister trying to downplay the role of the Japanese army in some of the worst atrocities of World War II, like the rape of Nanking. As you may recall, Abe made a lot of headlines back in 2006 and 2007 denying that Japan bore any state responsibility for the comfort women in China, which were basically women forced to be prostitutes to service the Japanese occupying army. Abe and supporters took out full-page ads in the Washington Post to try and uh, counter this black mark on their record. And it was a shock to him when the U.S. Congress passed a non-binding House resolution asking Japan to atone for its role in creating the comfort women system. Before I move too far into this, I should point out that the uh, Yamato dynasty by Sterling Seagrave shows in exquisite detail how it was that in spite of the fact that the Japanese militarists who brought about the part of World War II that, that took place in Asia, in spite of the fact that these guys were the, pretty much the architects of it, by and large, they escaped punishment. There was sort of an equivalent of the Nuremberg trials in Japan, but uh, it was kind of a slap on the wrist because Douglas MacArthur and General Charles Willoughby and others on the right who were establishing the new nation of Japan realized it was really important or felt it was really important that Japan act as a counterbalance to all this communism that seems to be sweeping across China. Therefore, if you were anti-communist, and the Japanese imperial forces certainly were anti-communist in World War II, well, they were now welcome to run the country. And so it is that the major force in Japanese politics, the Liberal Democratic Party, has been with us since the 1950s. In a New Yorker article from July of 2022 by Isaac Chotner, it was noted that Shinzo Abe was clear that a great deal of his political effort was to exonerate the name of his grandfather, who had been labeled a Class A war criminal. Oh, oh, by the way, 
His grandpa also became prime minister. That was in 1957. But anyway, politics certainly makes strange bedfellows, and I, I think it will perhaps surprise most of you listening to, to learn that the Labor Democratic Party, <laughs> a revived version of Japan's imperialist forces, decided along the way to enlist the political help of the Unification Church. And to delve into that, we'll go to The Atlantic, article by Robert F. Worth, titled The Prime Minister and the Moonies, with the subtitle The Bizarre Story Behind the Assassination of Shinzo Abe. This is from the October 2023 issue. I would pick up the narrative where the assassin has been hauled into the police station. At the Nara police station, the suspect, a 41-year-old named Tetsuya Yamagami, admitted to shooting barely 30 minutes earlier after pulling the trigger. He then offered a motive that sounded too outlandish to be true. He saw Abe as an ally of the Unification Church, a group better known as the Moonies, the cult founded in the 1950s by the Korean evangelist Reverend Sung Myung Moon. Yamagami said his life had been ruined when his mother gave the church all the family's money, leaving him and his siblings so poor they often didn't have enough to eat. His brother had committed suicide, and he himself had tried to. Investigators looked into Yamagami's wild-sounding claims and found, to their alarm, that they were true. After a quick huddle, the police appeared to have decided that the Mooney connection was too sensitive to reveal, at least for the moment. It might even affect the outcome of the elections for the upper house of the Diet set to take place July 10th. At a press conference on the night of the assassination, a police official would say only that Yamagami had carried out the attack because he harbored a grudge against a specific group and he assumed that Abe was linked to it. When reporters clamored for details, the officials said nothing. After the election, the Unification Church confirmed press reports that Yamagami's mother was a member and the story quickly took off. The Moonies that emerged maintained a volunteer army of campaign workers who had long been a secret weapon, not just for Abe, but for many other politicians in his conservative liberal Democratic Party, which remains a power under Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. Later that month, the Japanese tabloid Nikon Grandai published a list of 111 members of parliament who had connections to the church. Noted The Atlantic, in the days after Abe's assassination, many people were amazed to discover the Moonies were still relevant at all. In Japan, as in the U.S., the group had receded from the headlines since the 1980s and 90s when it made news with its bizarre mass weddings, eerily totalitarian style, and often brazen bids for political influence, including Sung Mung Moon's founding of The Washington Times, a conservative newspaper in the U.S. Capitol, which, by the way, is still there churning out conservative propaganda. The article explains how back in the 1950s, the conservative governments of South Korea decided that uh, the Unification Church could be a valuable ally. After all, it was very conservative and anti-communist. Notes the Atlantic, Moon used his state connections and his growing Japanese income to build a large portfolio of holdings. Tongil Heavy Industries, headed by one of Moon's cousins, manufactured artillery guns, <laughs> very, very Christian, and other weapons for the South Korean military. Moon's family owned or controlled chemical and construction companies, resorts, Brazilian soccer teams, and real estate all over the world, including the New Yorker Hotel. Moon's most successful business venture may have been sushi, which he and his Japanese followers helped popularize in the United States. 
eating raw tuna was still an exotic pursuit to Americans when Moon, the self-declared king of the ocean, began investing in shipyards in the late 1970s and sending his followers to sell door-to-door from refrigerated vans. True Whole Foods, a seafood company founded at Moon's direction, controls a large share of the sushi trade, selling raw fish to thousands of restaurants across the U.S. and Canada. Boy, I bet this circles back to what we talked about on last week's show about how many how many fishing boats are out on the high seas uh, with their transponder devices turned off. I think it's fair to say that the government of China and the Moonies are probably a little bit reluctant to uh, own up to what they've been doing. Anyway, near the end of the article, it's pointed out that the reputation of the accused, the admitted assassin, or if you prefer the American way of thinking about it, the suspect, may not suffer in the wake of his trial. The article notes that many Japanese still revere the right-wing nationalist who stormed Tokyo's government buildings in 1936 and killed not one, but two former prime ministers. The plot's ringleaders were later tried and executed, but a shrine to their memory stands in a prominent place in central Tokyo. Anyway, this whole thing is one hell of a saga, and I think that as time goes on, we'll try to update you as to what happens to the um, man that shot the former prime minister as Mr. Moon likes to say, the alleged assassin. And it might be added that this correspondent does not accept the possibility that he may have been a patsy. Let's, uh, let's move from the Far East to um, the Middle East and take a look at what's been going on in Gaza, a topic we have only touched on lightly in the past, and we'll probably not do it justice today either, but we need to take a stab at it. And we should probably start this off by acknowledging that it is Hamas who struck first. But let us review what the New York Times had to say about this in on December 1st, 2023. Article by Ronan Bergman and Adam Goldman said the following. Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plan for the October 7th terrorist attack more than a year before it happened. Documents, emails, and interviews show but Israeli military and intelligence officials dismissed the plan as aspirational considering it too difficult for Hamas to carry out. These intelligence materials, which Israeli authorities codenamed Jericho Wall, outlined point by point exactly the kind of devastating invasion that led to the deaths of about 1,200 people. The translated document, which was reviewed by the New York Times, did not set a date for the attack, but described a methodical assault designed to overwhelm the fortifications around the Gaza Strip taking over Israeli cities and storming key military bases, including a division headquarters. Hamas followed the blueprint with precision. The document called for a barrage of rockets at the onset of the attack, drones to knock out security cameras, and automated machine guns along the border, and gunmen to pour into Israel en masse in paragliders, on motorcycles, and on foot, all of which happened on October 7th. The plan also included details about the location and size of Israeli military forces, communication hubs, and other sensitive information, raising questions of how Hamas gathered its intelligence and whether there were leaks inside the Israeli security establishment. The document circulated widely among Israeli military and intelligence leaders, but experts determined that an attack on that scale and ambition was beyond Hamas's capabilities, according to the documents and officials. It is unclear whether Benjamin Netanyahu or other top political leaders saw the document. 
yeah, what are the chances of that? The article goes on to note that in July, three months before the attack, a veteran analyst with the unit S-200, which is Israel's signals intelligence agency, warned that Hamas had conducted an intense day-long training exercise that appeared similar to what was outlined in the blueprint. But a colonel in the Gaza division brushed off her concerns, according to encrypted emails viewed by the Times. The analyst wrote in email exchanges, I utterly refute that the scenario is imaginary. The Hamas training exercise, she said, fully matched the content of Jericho Wall. It is a plan designed to start a war, she added. It's not just a raid on a village. Officials privately concede, said the article, that had the military taken these warnings seriously and redirected significant reinforcements to the south, where Hamas attacked, Israel could have blunted the attacks or possibly even prevented them. Instead, the Israel military was unprepared as terrorists steamed out of the Gaza Strip. It was the deadliest day in Israel's history. We have another article, which I can't seem to put my hands on, talking about the curious fact that, just before the Hamas invasion, uh, quite a number of Israeli forces were moved from the south and west to the east, Now, the Mossad and Israeli intelligence has a reputation for being one of the most crack organizations on the planet when it comes to uh, probing what people are up to. So I think it strains credulity to believe that this was all a matter of an Israeli intelligence failure. We say that having seen this game played before. Remember back in 2003 when the U.S. launched a massive war against Iraq and later claimed that, wow, this whole idea that there were weapons of mass destruction, doggone it, that was an intelligence failure. Pretty sure if you ask Fareed Zakaria about that, that's, that's what he'll say, which is one reason we've never invited him on the program. Of course, since December, this so-called war on Hamas has, uh, has, has spun out of control. The last estimates we saw were, I don't know, 25,000 deaths, something like that, uh, half of them women and children. Something like half the buildings in Gaza have been damaged. 70% of the population or more is displaced. There's dangers of running out of food. There's dangers of running out of medicine. There's dangers of running out of water. Power is spotty. It is truly what you would call a war zone. But who is the war on? Hamas or the Gaza population? A word keeps coming up in the discussions about what's going on over there, and that word is genocide. That word didn't exist, by the way, until in the wake of World War II and the Holocaust and numerous other crimes against specific groups. uh, It had to be invented. And the story of how that word came about is one we should talk about, but not today. Nevertheless, the G word has surfaced and we, we hate to admit, seems appropriate in this case. Writing in The Guardian, Kenneth Roth said, Israel was created as a refuge from genocide. And now it stands accused of that very crime. At the International Court of Justice in The Hague last week, talking about a couple weeks back, South Africa alleged that Israel is violating international law by committing genocidal acts to, quote, destroy Palestinians in Gaza, end quote. South Africa's case is persuasive. It argues that Israel has shown an indifference to Palestinian civilian life, dropping munitions, including bombs that are bunker busters, into heavily populated areas. At least 25,000 Palestinians have been killed in the three-month war, including 10,000 children, and nearly all the territory's 2 million residents have been displaced from their homes. 
Israel insists it is simply acting in self-defense following Hamas's October 7th slaughter of 1,200 Israelis and calls South Africa's case an absurd blood libel. But writing in the New Republic, Mark Leon Goldberg says, South Africa presents strong evidence that Israel has genocidal intent, quoting numerous officials who have called for the destruction or removal of Palestinians in Gaza. They include Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has twice referenced the biblical nation of Amalek, which God, I would say in quotes, God, ordered the ancient Israelites to wipe out men and women and infants and sucklings. That pretty much outlines the definition of genocide, doesn't it? The word doesn't turn up in the Old Testament, but um, the acts describing it certainly do. Writing in the New York Times, Megan K. Stack said, self-defense cannot excuse or justify acts of genocide. It's for the International Court of Justice to determine whether Israel has cleared that high bar. But the war has clearly ceased to be, if it ever was, a, quote, targeted retaliation, unquote, against Hamas, whose leaders live in Qatar, or a mission to free Israeli hostages, only one of whom has been rescued. The verdict in the case is years away, but if the IJC orders an emergency ceasefire, it could galvanize international opinion against Israel, making it harder for the U.S. to continue funding and defending Israel's extraordinary spasm of violence in Gaza. We should also stress that those who criticize Israel's actions, and and those actions certainly are deserving of some criticism, are not being anti-Semitic. The actions of the Israeli government dating back to the founding of the state of Israel are not above reproach. And yet, if you point out some things that should not have been done, but yet were done, you'll be accused of being anti-Semitic. Jimmy Carter certainly was when he wrote a book titled Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. Writing about the book, James Zogby said, an observation which Carter makes at the very end of the book is where he notes, quote, there are constant and vehement political and media debates in Israel concerning its policies in the West Bank. But because of powerful economic and religious forces in the U.S., Israeli government decisions are rarely questions or condemned. Voices from Israel dominate our media, and most American citizens are unaware of circumstances in the occupied territories. Said Zogby, on both counts, the former president's observations are well-founded coming out of his three decades-long experience in dealing with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. When, as president, Carter helped to negotiate the Camp David Accords, the Likud government of then-Prime Minister Menachem Begin was in the early stages of implementing an ambitious settlement program in the West Bank. At that point, there were about 50,000 Israeli settlers in the occupied territories. I'm not sure what the number stands at currently, but I believe it's several hundred thousand, perhaps almost a half million. And in this case, I'm referring to Jewish settlers who have moved into what was supposed to be Palestinian territory. Sogby notes that Carter criticized this expansion of the program to put more settlers in the West Bank, citing it as a clear violation of international law and U.S. policy. The U.S. voted for a U.N. Security Council resolution, which Carter reprinted in full. Israel was not deterred. It continued to seize more Palestinian land and build more settlements. Even during the Oslo decade of the 90s, settlements continued to grow, doubling in overall size, as did construction of Jewish-only roads designed to connect the settlements to Israel 
and further encumber Palestinian freedom of movement. And Zogmi, writing in 07, cites a figure of half a million settlers in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Carter was right. There is an apartheid system in Israel slash Palestine, and that is at the root of what is going on right now in Gaza. And on that sad note, we're going to need to take a short break. So let's, let's do that. I think we need a breather here. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.